0: In episode four two zero with Dr Dan Golly, we cover all things newborn babies and how to have a thriving, healthy, sleeping bubba and a thriving mama. The Melissa Ambrosini Show. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating. Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy, is out right now. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, Never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on Comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because we cover everything on how to have a happy, healthy, sleeping baby. We talk about burping, we talk about poop, we talk about settling and resettling, eczema, and so much more. And for those of you that have never heard of Dr. Dan Golly, he is a pediatrician and father of three, specializing in unsettled babies and poor sleep. And he developed an online program through his work with thousands of babies over more than a decade of practice, with a focus on empowering parents and protecting mothers. He turns up the volume of that innate prenatal instinct to maximize parents' understanding of their baby's cues and bring everyone closer to a full night's sleep. Head to MelissaAmbrosini.com forward slash 420 for the show notes. And now let's dive in. Dr. Golly, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: Oh, it sounds seems like so long ago because I had an early start with a few babies arriving this morning. But this morning I had some delicious avocado on rice crackers and washed it down. I made some orange and tangelo juice freshly squeezed for the whole family. It was delicious. My mouth is actually watering just thinking about it right now. <laughs>
0: Yum. I'm coming over for breakfast.
1: (laughs) Anytime. You're welcome.
0: Oh, thank you. I am so excited to have you here. I first discovered you through another podcast. I was listening to another show and you popped up. It was titled something all about newborns. And as I've just had a newborn, I was onto that podcast episode straight away. I was actually listening to it in the very early stages of my newborn baby arriving. And it was probably Midnight and I was sitting in my kitchen with a heat pack over my breast (laughs) (laughs) with the hucker on my boob and just hand massaging my engorged breasts out into the hucker whilst I was listening to that episode. So I want to thank you for that episode and thank you for keeping me company in all hours of the (laughs) night. And yeah, so I, I discovered you there and then I did your newborn course, your big baby online program which I loved. And I just want to thank you so much for that program because it's given me so many tips and tricks and has helped me have a happy and settled baby, which we're going to dive into today. But before we dive into all of that, tell us a little bit about how you got into being a pediatrician. How did this happen for you?
1: All right, well, where do I begin? I am, from a very young age, I knew that I always wanted to go into some field that involved helping people. I wasn't always sure what that was and um, I pursued medicine because it felt like a natural fit and I just, I really loved the study of it. When I finished medicine, I had that curse where I enjoyed every single aspect so much that every time I did a, a rotation through surgery, I wanted to be a surgeon. And then when I did a rotation through gastroenterology, that's all I wanted to be. And I could never decide until I did a rotation through pediatrics. And on day one, I just turned around and said, this is exactly where I want to be. I love children, but it's so much more than that. I love the interaction you have with the child as the patient, but also it's unique in medicine because you've got the parent as a patient as well. And I really, really enjoyed that interaction and just the ability to hopefully help people at a time of need and when they are sometimes at the most vulnerable. I really, really treasured that feeling. So I committed to pursue pediatrics and and I did and I loved it. I trained at the children's hospital and traveled the world and worked everywhere. It was a a whole lot of fun and really eye-opening and I was able to grow from it. Then during this process, my wife and I had our first child and I don't know if it was perceived or if it was real, but I had this preconceived notion about what that experience was going to be like. Perhaps I felt that as a paediatrician, I had to have the perfect child, the most settled baby, nothing could go wrong. And here I am giving people advice. And then I'm a well of it. Surely it would be a walk in the park. And it was anything but. My daughter is gorgeous and healthy and beautiful, and I'm blessed, but it was a really, really traumatizing experience for my wife and I. She was terribly unsettled, and we searched far and wide to try to find an answer. Um, I was straight back into work. I was working night shifts in emergency, in a pediatric emergency department. It was really, really hard, especially on my wife, and mostly it was hard on my daughter because she was so unsettled. And we went to a pediatrician, we went to a sleep consultant, we we sought help and no one could solve this problem. And then we just learned more and more about it over many, many, many months. And then I became somewhat obsessed with the field of unsettled babies through my own experience that I felt should have been so much better than it was. And we've subsequently had a son, another daughter, we have, we keep learning. And I just dived into this whole world of babies, unsettled babies, all the different reasons why. And I've read every book and watched every video and done every course. I've trained in infant mental health, you name it. And finally, not finally, because I think I'm still learning even to this day, but I'm at the point where it's become a sort of like an unintentional niche for me. And I just love the opportunity to enable families to really enjoy this period and not have them see it as something they have to just survive. And that's where I am now.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. It's often through the breakdown, we have the breakthroughs. So it's, you know, we go through these experiences and they often yeah become our light and our work. So I'm so glad that you are sharing everything that you know and you, you've learned over the years. I have so many questions for you. And I actually put this out to my following as well and got some questions from them as well. We got lots and lots, so we'll do our best to get through them all. But for everyone listening, even if you don't have a baby, maybe one day you want to have children or you know someone who is about to have a baby, please forward this onto them or you can bookmark this for you know when your time has come. But I almost wished I had this information before Bambi arrived because, you know, we went through a couple of weeks of just floundering, like really floundering.
1: You won't believe how common that is. You know, there's, and you can, I'm sure, vouch for this. There is so much focus on pregnancy and so much focus on the delivery, the method, the the interventions, all of that. And there's so little attention given to what you do when the baby arrives it's almost like <laughs> here's a baby you go figure it out and that's the hardest part yeah. you know when you're pregnant there is an end to it it's finite but when you have a baby it seems like as soon as you solve one problem they grow and then another one arrives so I 100% agree with you and I I urge mothers, fathers, carers, expecting or seasoned parents, don't listen to this when you've got a two-week hold like you did in the kitchen at midnight. It will be so much more valuable to upskill and really know what's coming because I do think that if you have these skills almost like a toolbox prior to the baby's arrival, you just come at it with so much more confidence and that is the key. It's about arriving with confidence and the baby feels that and the baby drinks that up and then they are more likely to be settled, which furthers your confidence as a parent and you just get this beautiful positive cycle as opposed to the negative one that I see all too often.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. We were having lunch before we started recording, Nick and I and Bambi. We were sitting around our coffee table on our floor and we were having lunch together and he just looked over at me and he just said, look at her, like she's She's just amazing. And you birthed her. And isn't it amazing that we have babies and no one gives you a manual? No one gives you the roadmap. So I am truly hoping that this helps those people. And like I said, send this to any of your pregnant friends. And, you know, sleep is a controversial topic when it comes to babies. But a couple of things that really drew me to you was that you say no one size fits all babies, which I totally agree because it's the same as adults, like what works for me may not work for you. Uh, you are very focused on secure attachment, which we'll dive into. And your motto is powerful families and sleeping babies. And this is what we want. We want thriving mamas and thriving bubbers. Because if the bubba is not thriving, the mama is not thriving, and the whole family unit tends to fall to pieces. And we don't want that. We want thriving, powerful families and thriving bubbers. And, you know, I know sleep is a controversial topic, but ultimately, the most important thing is that we have a happy and healthy baby.
1: Exactly right. And we enjoy that process.
0: Exactly, exactly. So talk to us firstly about what are the most common things that cause an unsettled baby?
1: By far, the single most common cause of an unsettled baby in the first few weeks of life is the baby who's not winded, not burped adequately. And that is going from what I tend to see in my rooms, this room right here, it's, I can't give you statistics, but you, you wouldn't believe how common you. I come across a perfectly healthy baby. There might be a few little small things that we need to tweak that we can solve quite quickly when it comes to perhaps the diet of a breastfeeding mother, um, a little bit of eczema that we can clear up or whatever it may be. But when you get down to it, by far the most common cause is the baby who's not burping enough. And that is for a breastfed baby, a bottle-fed baby. It doesn't matter the type of food that's going in, the way the food is going in, every baby needs to burp. Now, probably the biggest source of frustration for a lot of parents out there and caregivers Is that there's so much information, and you can speak to one professional who tells you one thing and another one who tells you another thing, and there's so much conflicting advice. And it exists for many reasons, and it exists because it's a highly emotive topic. You know, we are extremely protective over our cubs, and that's a great thing. But at the same time, we're dealing with them when they're at their most needy, when we are at our most sleep deprived, our own most vulnerable. It tends to happen in families when All of the major life stresses happen at once. You might have a mortgage that you're, you know, in deep into. Work is really demanding. And it's a really, really difficult thing when these things all come at once. And we don't live in tribes anymore. You know, it used to take a village. That that saying is absolutely true. And we don't live like that. We live in isolated silos where we have our own individual kitchen and our own individual bathroom and we do things separately, whereas previously we used to share that load. And just talking breastfeeding for example, not every woman is built to exclusively breastfeed. And when you look back at that tribal village type behavior, there were wet nurses who used to feed all the babies of the tribe, while their birth mothers may be out hunting or cooking or cleaning or building or whatever they were physically fantastic at, while you had these other women who had big pendulous breasts with fantastic equipment, they had good flow, infinite supply, and they would contribute to the village, and that was their way of giving. And no one made the other mother who couldn't breastfeed exclusively, no one made them feel bad about it, no one pressured them into doing it. And that's just one of many examples of a source of stress, a source of pressure and a source of potential anxiety that new parents or even multis are feeling. And what that does is two things. If you are a breastfeeding mother and you're struggling, the easiest way to reduce your supply is add stress, add sleep deprivation, the guaranteed way. But the other thing that it does and the thing that upsets me most and, and really breaks my heart in clinical practice when I see this every day is that it dulls your innate maternal and paternal instinct. It makes you doubt yourself. And so often I have people come to me and say, this is the problem I'm here because my GP or my maternal nurse or friend said I should come to you. I think the problem is this, but they're worried about that. That mother's never wrong. That gut instinct is so strong. It's there for a reason. But when you doubt it and when you read too many books and when you watch too many things that say, no, you've got to do this and you've got to do that, it just dulls, it silences that innate voice. And you you touched on it before when I said that there's no size fits all model. And I think um, the most pleasant feedback that we get for people who do go through the sleep program is that they say, wow, I thought it would just be another routine that we have to force our baby into. And then they realize it's actually a course. They're actually enrolled in, of course, they felt like university students again. And that's exactly what I want to do. I just want to give, you mentioned it, empowered parents. I want to give them the skills so that they can then interpret their baby's needs and everyone is settled, baby and parents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're going back to the burping, your burping video, the, the demonstration video in the course was a game changer for me. Um, <laughs> I'm glad so, to hear. <laughs> honestly. And the first time Nick and I did it, we were like, oh my gosh, she's burping straight away. It's so <laughs> amazing. And, you know, burping can feel like another thing that we have to do. And in those early days, you, you know, you don't need to burp them. And then they all of a sudden you start needing to burp them. But I want to know, can you share your little burping technique, which I had never heard of? I'd always thought you put them up and you belt them on, not belt them, you you know, hit them on the back, not hit, you know what I mean? Um, You know know what I mean? (laughs) You pat them on the back or you kind of like jig them up and down and you pat and you rub or you do the sitting on the lap where you hold their cheeks and you do the same patting and rubbing on the back. I thought that's what you do. And then in your course, you said, well, if you had a big milkshake, would you want someone belting your back? And it made me go, oh my gosh, as if anyone wants that, as if anyone wants to have eaten a big meal and then have someone patting their back and rubbing their back, trying to get them to burp. And so your technique, I really loved and it's worked so well for Bambi. So can you share your technique with us and how did you discover it?
1: Uh, Through lots and lots of trial and error (laughs) and lots and lots of research as well. I think the best way to understand it is to understand why wind gets there, how it gets there, what it causes, and then the way of removing it. So babies are what we call obligate nose breathers. They have to breathe through their nose so that they can feed through their mouth. And because they feed for extended periods of time, multiple minutes in a row, they have to be breathing at the same time. So swallowing air is completely inevitable. There is no way that you can not swallow air while you are feeding as a baby. So the first thing to understand is that every single baby swallows air, which means every single baby has to burp. And you can burp a baby from the very first feed, although in the first week, maybe two weeks, babies are incredibly insensitive. It's a design method so that they're not too traumatized by the stress of childbirth they're quite insensitive. And you'll you'll recall, you could take a newborn to a rock concert, they'll sleep through it. You can take them anywhere. But then fast forward two or three weeks and all of a sudden they're starting to wake up and they're perking up a bit. And then they're more sensitive to things around them, but they're also more sensitive to things inside them. And so the one week old did need to burp, but may not have suffered due to the presence of wind, whereas the three-week-old, the six-week-old, the three-month-old will very much suffer and tell you that they're uncomfortable when they've got wind trapped there. So there's the problem that the wind causes pain and discomfort when it eventually turns into a fart, which takes about five or six hours. But there's also the other issue that gas takes up space. It's not a vacuum. So if you've got a lot of wind that you're leaving in the stomach, that means that more milk can't get in. And if you think about it logically, if you can't get more milk in per feed, the only way to get an adequate volume at the end of a 24-hour period is just to feed more often. And that's where we start to see this frequent feeding or snacking cycle develop. And that comes hand in hand with a baby that's not birthed enough. The big trick to winding is about transitioning their position. So moving them around more and more. And the technique goes through that, as you, as you mentioned. Studies have shown time and time again that patting doesn't do anything to bring wind up. And the reason why we pat babies is simply to remind them of a time when they felt most settled and most comfortable, and that was when they were still in the womb. So the patting is actually reminding them of their mother's heartbeat. Now the heartbeat, if you can imagine your abdominal aorta, the the major tube that comes off the heart and feeds blood to the rest of the body as it tracks down the length of your abdomen, it rests right up against the baby in the uterus. And if you think about your own heartbeat, it's not a rapid tapping like that. It's a very slow, calm consistent, almost like a metronome. And that's what we want to do. And in order to do that, you can even rest the hand on the baby and just move a finger up and down, a very gentle tap, because that's all they need to feel like they're being returned to the womb. You do not need to pat them. You do not need to whack them. And it certainly has no impact on winding. Movement is another thing that returns babies to the womb because you move all the time. Even when you're sleeping, you're moving around and they like that movement. They don't like to feel still. It can sometimes be a bit disconcerting. So if you were to hold your baby in that vertical position, keeping them calm with a gentle tap and just walk around the room or walk around the house, that movement together with the position change is going to help expel Wind. And the key is to repeat it multiple times per breast or per part of the bottle to try to extract as many burps as you can in a feed to not only make that feed more successful in terms of volume, but also protect your next feed and the feed after that. And when we see successful burping with each feed throughout the day, you completely eradicate witching hour, it disappears. You have babies sleeping through the night so much earlier. You have terrific weight gain. And most importantly, you have um, calm, well-rested, happy, confident parents who present as that. And that's, you touched on before, secure attachment. It's not as valuable having a parent who's there all the time if that parent is completely finished, if they're exhausted, if they're holding a baby and they're actually not happy and they're not enjoying it. Whereas if they are there and they are well-slept and the baby's well-slept, you guys are dancing the most beautiful tango and everyone is happy and everyone benefits and that's true secure attachment.
0: Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. So how many burps should we aim Uh for?
1: There isn't a magic number, but there is a magic burp. And every parent who nails this method will tell you about the magic burp, whether it's the third or it's the eighth. It's like the last one and you can feel your baby completely melt in your arms. You can see when they are totally calm and you just know that they are totally bereft of wind. They are so much more comfortable. And that's, you know, I used to call it the golden burp or the magic burp. But the number isn't important because every baby is different. Some babies will have big volume burps and some will do lots of little ones. So I like to devote a particular period of time, a good 15 minutes, and it's important, you touched on something really great before where you said, you know, people can go through the program and think to themselves, oh my God, please don't add another task to my day. Don't make me do more. I'm already exhausted. But winding is, you've got an opportunity to wind all the time. Every time you're doing a nappy change, there's an opportunity to birth. Every time you're changing clothes, there's an opportunity to burp. When you're interacting with your baby on the play mat, there's an opportunity to burp. So it's not an isolated extra half an hour per feed on winding. It's just living life. In fact, even tummy time is, can easily be incorporated into a part of winding. So it should never be seen as an extra task, although it often does elongate the period of, quote unquote, feeding time, usually around an hour. But if you are going from feeding 10 times a day to five times a day or six times a day, most parents will turn around and say, I don't care what I have to do. If I can sleep through the night and if I can have, most importantly, a happy baby, I don't care how long it takes.
0: Absolutely. So, what I was doing was what I thought was that, you know, say I fed for half an hour. And then 15 minutes after that, I was burping, but I don't necessarily have to do it straight away. You're saying that I can go about my day and have a play with her and put her on the mat and maybe go make myself a drink or whatever and come back and then keep going. So you don't have to do it straight after the feed. That's what I'm trying to say. Is, is that right?
1: You can start immediately after the feed and for the next 15 or 20 minutes, just enjoy life. But Mm -hmm. you're constantly coming back to the bub to get more wind out. So it might be that you put baby down, you go make your cup of tea, two minutes later you're back and there's another burp opportunity. Then you quickly run to the loo, come back, there's another burp opportunity. So you don't have to be stuck in that one spot in the nursery or bedroom or lounge room, wherever it may be, just focusing on one thing only. You can still move around, you can even go for a walk, you can go for a drive, but constantly in the back of your mind, you're thinking, Winding, winding, winding. It becomes second nature soon as you saw with Nick, where you realize that the method works and just how much happier Bambi was when she was winded adequately suddenly becomes not your focus and not like another chore. It becomes almost exciting for some parents because you think, Oh, yes, another burp, another burp. And then you, you know, you walk around the house giving high fives and talk about which method you use and which method you use. And it's a really fun thing. It's not another chore. And once you do it and you see how much happier the baby is, like I said, you don't care how long it takes and you don't care how much you have to do it because you just have a happier product at the end of the day.
0: Absolutely. And like I shared with you before we started recording, Bambi was sleeping through the night, which has just been magic. And however, last night she woke twice and I know it's because I didn't wind her enough yesterday during the day. And I know because all night she was kind of like, "Eh, eh, eh," and like kicking her legs and she was moving around and she was like wriggling. So I know that that was the case. And I thought, oh, okay, I should have taken some more time to wind her. I have two questions regarding this.
1: It's really, it's really important. I just wanted to touch on two things that you just said. Life happens, life gets in the way and you might have an appointment or you might get caught in the rain. You don't have to fret because every single day it's like a hard reset. You can, you know, control or delete on the bad day that passed because there will be something. Your baby might get a cold or you know, they might break a tooth, they might be immunized, there might be something that just throws everything out of whack. And the worst thing, I would never want these routines and these pieces of advice to become feel like a noose around your neck. It's not intended to put more pressure on, it's intended to take pressure off. So if you do miss burping in one feed and you know it's going to be a difficult night, firstly, you'll have more bandwidth to cope with it because you'll come to that point better rested. But secondly, don't beat yourself up. It happens. You have bad days and you take the good with the bad and we just hope that we're having many more good than bad and then you can cope with it, you can deal with it.
0: Absolutely. So what age do babies start to be able to burp themselves? What age? Or is it different for every baby?
1: It's a great question. Most babies are going to be growing out of that colicky, windy, unsettled stage by three to four months. And usually that coincides with when they're able to roll independently, because when you lie in your stomach, not only are you less bothered by wind that's in your system, you're also able to actually burp better. And that's why, interestingly, this issue of colic and unsettled babies didn't really exist when we were children. And part of the problem I find is the grandparent, well-meaning, gorgeous, and I absolutely respect them, but they often say, we didn't have this problem back in our day, you know, as if to say, you're making this up or you're acting like it's harder than it needs to be. But the truth is they didn't have the same degree of problem because they didn't have SIDS awareness. So we are lying babies on their back and dramatically reducing the incidence of SIDS. So that's a non-negotiable. That's fantastic we have a significantly reduced infant mortality rate than our parents did when they were parents of newborns. But unfortunately we've traded that in for two problems, one of which is unsettled babies and the second is flat head syndrome. So there are two things we need to deal with but they are absolutely preventable and we just have to be aware of them so that they don't become bigger problems down the track.
0: Okay, cool. So around that three to four month, like even now I know Bambi can Yeah, she can almost like she'll just burp herself, but I still do need to help her. However, she is rolling. And so after a feed, if I put her down on the mat and if she rolls straight away, a little bit of milk will come up. So I'm trying at the moment to, I'm like just playing with her on her back and I'm like, stay here, babe, like stay just until she has burped and she has digested her milk. Is that common where babies roll and a little bit will come up? And and what can we
1: do to prevent that? You don't necessarily have to prevent it is the first thing. A little bit of spilling is not the end of the world. It's annoying. It smells. I get it. It makes a mess. But if it's a small volume, don't ever fear the posset. And it's important that you call it a posset and not a vomit. Yes. Vomit implies, um, the language here is really crucial. So vomit implies a complete ejection of all stomach contents. It comes with, you know, I don't want to be too graphic here, I apologize, but it comes with a heave you know, the shoulders go up and there's a gag. And if someone vomits from being sick or drinking too much, there's a real physical reaction. Whereas most people will report a posset, the baby barely even notices it. It just kind of spills. Half the time you just find the puddle. You don't even know when it came out. So don't confuse a posset with a vomit. You never have to worry about posseting as long as we're, we've got good weight gain, of course. So a lot of people will report their babies positing frequently and then say, oh, I'm afraid my baby's got reflux. And then they'll go down this medicalized path of treatment. Reflux is absolutely the single most over-diagnosed, unnecessarily diagnosed condition. Just because babies are unsettled and positing a lot, it is not reflux at all and doesn't need to be treated. What you might do when your baby's four months and still needs to burp, but can burp themselves, in sort of in that middle grey area, you might say, "Okay, instead of fifteen minutes after each breast, I'm just going to burp for five minutes. I'll get two big burps up, and then you'll find that baby uh, Bambi can roll around and be more comfortable on her tummy, get some more burps up herself. So both you and baby become more and more efficient with burping, so the duration can shrink." And also what you find if you have started solids, that baby is sitting up much more for longer durations during the day because you're giving them solids because they're developmentally able to. And when they're upright, they can burp themselves. So the need to burp doesn't disappear, but their ability to take over that responsibility increases with time.
0: Yes. Oh gosh, this is so, thank you for saying that because I was wondering, oh no, is she losing those calories? I want her to keep those calories. But yeah, we've always called it spit up. We've just said, you know, a little bit of spit up. We've never used the word vomit. And like you, we are very mindful of our language always, but even more so now that we have Bambi who feels everything, even though you know, she doesn't exactly know what we're saying. She knows, you know, energetically she knows and what you Absolutely. were saying. Absolutely.
1: You are so right. I tell people all the time. Babies are the most incredible communicators. They're like animals. They can smell your emotion. Babies drink so much more than milk. I tell mums and dads this every day. They drink every single thing that you bring to them. All your emotions, all your fears, your confidence. And the more parents understand that and the need to feel confident, the more confident they will be and then the more comfortable that baby will be in their arms.
0: A hundred percent. Confidence is everything. And I think for me, there have been moments where I've felt not confident at all. And so they're the moments where I'm like, I need to step away for a second. Nick, I need you to hold the fort. I need you to be, you know, I need Bambi to be in your arms. I just need to go for a walk or dive in the ocean. I just need a moment for myself to regain my center so that I can then come back to her as the best version of myself. And I know how important that is. And going back to what you were saying before about we don't live in tribes anymore and asking for support is so important. I always talk about mastering that inner mean girl in our, inside our head that says, or you can't possibly bother someone, or you can't possibly ask your mother-in-law to do this for you. Yes, you can. And we need support from our friends and our family. And, you know, it takes a village, like you said. So don't be afraid to ask for support. Exactly right.
1: The analogy when you're on an airplane, every single time you're there, you listen to the safety announcement and they say when the oxygen drops from the ceiling, you always put it on you first. And that analogy rings true as a parent, you've got to look after yourself because if you aren't functioning well and happy and present, then you can't provide as much to your baby. So for you to step out and just reconnect, recenter, as you said, go for a swim, whatever it is that you need to do. Sometimes it might just be going for a walk. Sometimes you might just need to have a nap or, or whatever it may be, go out with friends, whatever recharges your batteries, that is what's going to have you come back to that baby fully charged, full of energy, confident and able to weather those little storms, those inevitable little hurdles that come along the way. There's no such thing as a baby that's settled all the time. That's a fallacy. So you've got to look after yourself and you are 100% right. We are afraid to ask for help. And the thing that's so frustrating is when these beautiful well wishes be it a grandparent or an aunt or a friend who come over when you've just had a newborn, don't visit someone's house with a newborn and expect to be waited upon Mm. and expect to be served cake and tea and I'll wash your cup and everything. Go to that person and instead of buying them flowers, albeit beautiful, take care of their washing give them a dry cleaning voucher, organize for their home to be clean, send them pre-made food, things that are so intelligently practical and necessary because that's what you will remember. I'll that's never forget. When, yeah, when we had our third child had to have surgery just before she was one year of age and there were some beautiful cards sent and beautiful flowers and they're really beautiful and I'm, I'm not you know, negating how beautiful those messages and those things were, but it was the person who delivered a lasagna that was what we remembered. It was the person who cooked food and just dropped it on our doorstep. That was what really helped us in that moment. So if you want to help someone who's had a baby, give them practical help, give them sometimes just an ear to listen to, or even just come over, pick that baby up and tell them to go for a walk or tell them to go for a sleep, whatever it may be. That's the best way to help a family.
0: A hundred percent. I recently did a solo episode all about my postpartum recovery and everything that I did and everything that I had. I had a four week meal train where organic meals were delivered to my door for four weeks from my friends and family. And I shared everything that I did in that postpartum period. And I set this all up for myself before baby girl arrived. And I cannot tell you how supportive it was for me. So I really want to encourage everyone listening to, yes, think about the birth, visualize the birth, plan your dream birth, and plan the postpartum period as well. And one of those things that you can do to plan for that postpartum period is one of Dr. Golly's programs. Well, you do the newborn program and dive into that because I kind of wish I had of, but you know, there's no regrets. I'm here and I've learned so much along the way. But the information, you cover everything in your program. It's so great. You cover things about white noise and blocking out the light and routines and burping and gas and food and all of the things that you need to know. But I want to talk about now settling and resettling a baby because you've got some great techniques. I'd love for you to talk about your two techniques and the difference between settling a baby and then resettling during the night or during a sleep and how we can do
1: this. Okay. Thank you. The key, we touched on it before, the key to settling a baby is number one, before you start, make sure that you have the correct expectation. Make sure you've got perspective. Don't hold a six-day-old baby and say, I'm not feeding you, you can sleep through the night. That's not going to work. And obviously, that's an extreme example. But um, you have to make sure that you're on an age-appropriate routine. That's what you're aiming for. The next thing is remove hurdles that can potentially impact a baby's ability to sleep. So you talked about it before, the program touches on nutrition, the program touches on skin changes, the program touches on siblings and if you've got twins and all of the, because there are so many aspects that contribute to having the ability to sleep through the night. So if a baby's got uncontrolled eczema, good luck having that baby sleep through the night, it's not going to happen because eczema is profoundly itchy and you're not going to be able to resettle that baby. And there's no point in having a baby that stretches for six or seven hours without feeding if it requires you to hold that baby. That's not a settled baby. That's not a happy sleeping family. That's why I don't like these products like certain cots. You will have heard of the snoo, these cots that are essentially just a robotic nanny that holds the baby for hours and hours through the night. That bothers me because that's that baby has got something that's causing them to be unsettled and we aren't looking for it because we're almost just distracting them into not crying, but they're not in fact happy, settled, content, and well-rested. So I know I digress now, but if we're talking about having removed all the potential hurdles for that baby being unsettled, then what you want to do is everything possible to return them to the feeling of being in the womb, because that is when we are at our most calm and most settled. You touched on it before, how you love to get into the water. Why do humans love being in water? Why do we have long baths? Why are we so refreshed from surfing or swimming? Because we spent nine months growing in a bath of water. That is our safe place. We're so deeply connected with water. Without water, there is no life. What are some of the other things, if you take yourself back, just imagine what it's like being in the womb. Well, you can't see anything. It's dark you hear things that it's like listening to things underwater. It's all muffled and, well, what does that remind you of? That's white noise. It's like radio static. It's hearing things but nothing specific. It's just background noise. So don't seek to have a silent household because the baby's sleeping. And where do you think shush comes from? Even that sound that we make to tell people to be quiet, shh, that's white noise. That is what life sounds like when you are still in the womb. And we talked about it before. The patting reminds people of their mother's abdominal aorta, movement. So that's why we rock babies. And when you combine all of these settling techniques on a baby who is well-fed, has got no wind... No other hurdles like eczema or a a tag from a beautiful onesie that's scratching their neck or whatever it may be, too hot, too cold. Once you've excluded all of those, you can trust that that baby is going to be able to be put down sleepy but awake and then drift off to sleep themselves. Now we come to resettling. One of the most common things that I hear is the baby who catnaps or the baby who only sleeps for 45 minutes at a time. And the reason that happens is because 45 minutes is a typical sleep cycle where we go from light sleep to deep sleep and back to light. As adults, ours is more like, it's a little bit long, about an hour and a half through one cycle, but babies will typically about 45 or 50 minutes. Now, the way that you fall asleep is the way that you expect to wake up. So if you are falling asleep, being held in your parents' or carers' arms, being rocked and shushed and patted and all of those settling techniques, you fall asleep, your parents then transfer you to the bassinet or cot and you wake up 45 minutes later, totally happy. You're going to wonder, hold on, how did I get here? And you know it's the same as you. It, Melissa, You, if you go to bed tonight in your bed and you woke up on that bed behind me in my examination room in Melbourne, there is no way that you were going to roll over and happily go back to sleep. It just doesn't happen. So babies are no different. The way that they fall asleep is the way they expect to wake up. And if they fall asleep by themselves, swaddle tight, absolutely happy, and wake up in exactly the same place, same position. Everything's the same. They're just going to look around and very comfortably stitch together another sleep cycle. And that's how we get them to resettle. Sometimes you might need to assist. Maybe the swaddle has become loose and it needs to be tightened again. Maybe the nappy needs to be changed. Maybe there was a golden burp that we missed. So when it comes to resettling, you know what the baby is capable of based on the routine matched for their age. If you know the baby is healthy, good weight, there are no other concerns, and you're thinking to yourself, it's two in the morning, baby should be able to stretch longer, then what I encourage parents to do is to not have feeding be the first thing you think of. And that's where resettling comes into it. If you pick that baby up and try some of those techniques, whether it's re-swaddling, change a nappy, give a cuddle, use some of those settling techniques, put them back down, they can often get straight back into sleep without needing to be fed. And that's the reason I'm so keen on dads and the non-breastfeeding parent, whether it's another mum or a carer, a grandparent, whomever it may be, the non-breastfeeding parent is going to be far more successful at that resettling day or night because they don't smell of breast milk. And therefore, that baby's going to stitch together sleep cycles and be able to last much longer during the day sleeps and during the night sleeps.
0: Oh, so important. I wish I had have known all of this (laughs) before I dove into new mamahood.
1: And that's what's interesting. You do know it. It's already inside you. It's inside all of us. And I don't want to sound a bit wanky, but it really is. It's inside all of us. And what is my intention? My hope is to turn the volume up on that instinct that's already there. If you came across a friend of yours who is going through a tough time, the way that you console him or her is exactly the same way you are settling Bambi. You are hugging them tight. That's a swaddle. You're saying, shh, that's white noise. You're patting them as you hug them and embrace them. That's reminding them of their mother's heartbeat from 30, 40 years ago. All of, the, And you know, you'll hug them and you'll rock backwards and forwards with them. So even the techniques that we use to settle ourselves, settle adults, grandparents, strangers, they're the same techniques. We never, ever stop responding to them. It's innate. It's inside of us. So you're already doing it and you're doing it beautifully. All we need to do is give you the confidence and tools to be able to do that with your children.
0: Yeah. And I think as a first time mama, that confidence, I'm sure like a lot of my friends who have had their second and their third, they always say to me, Melissa, it's just the first time mama confidence thing. Like, She's like, as soon as you have the second, you'll just be like flying. And I know that is, it's new. I'm on my L plates. You know, it's like rocking up to a new job. I'm still sussing out how everything works. And yes, that intuition is very innate within me. And even, you know, I thought as well, I didn't want to, at the start, I didn't want to do blackout blinds and white noise and all of these things because I thought that they were sleep crutches. And I thought that she would then get super dependent on those things. And that if we ever went to grandma's house and we didn't have blackout blinds or we didn't have the white noise, that she wouldn't be able to sleep. But I've soon realized that that is not the case. And that in fact, you know, when I created this environment for her, she thrives. And then even when we do go somewhere else and it's not as dark, she still thrives and sleeps well. So can you talk about sleep crutches and sleep
1: aids? Absolutely. Anything that involves returning them to the womb, like we've talked about, is not a sleep crutch. It's not a sleep aid. It's creating the perfect sleep environment and it's wonderful and it's portable. Like you said, you can you can take block out blinds or you can, you know, put silver foil on the windows when you're on holiday in summer where it gets brighter, earlier, whatever it may be, all of these things are portable. There are wonderful apps and white noise machines. So every single thing that returns a baby to the womb is able to be transported anywhere around the world, summer, winter, it doesn't matter. The problem exists when we start to use certain crutches, like for example, rocking your baby to sleep. Feeding your baby to sleep. Those things you do out of desperation because you just want to get some shut eye. I get it. I've been there. Believe me, I've been there. You do whatever you can do to just get a moment of peace and a moment of stopping the baby from crying. And the problem with that is that once you start, you enter into a cycle that, by definition, you can't stop. And so that's why. We see so often that it all started at one point and parents will always say, it started, baby was a really good baby, we had a great routine, and then they got sick once. And ever since then, they've been sleeping in our bed, whereas previously they weren't, or they've been waking three times in the night, whereas previously they weren't. Whatever the habit that has been formed that the parents don't want usually gets formed out of desperation. And then the challenge is to come back to what you know that baby's capable of. And of course, it's got to be something that you want. If you want your baby sleeping with you, then all power to you. There's no issue there, but it's all about what you want. And you can only decide what you want once you have the skills to know what they're capable of. And then you can choose and say, I don't actually need to sleep seven straight hours, I'm quite comfortable. So I'm happy to wake during the night and I like that. So you might not employ all of these techniques because you're going really well and you're happy and you're confident. Like I said, the last thing that I would ever want is for someone to do the program and think I'm a failure because my baby's not sleeping through the night. It doesn't work like that. It's more a case of my baby is of the right age, they're of the right weight I can't see a reason why they're not sleeping through the night. This is when I need to go and seek help. This is when I need to go and see a doctor or a pediatrician or whomever may be guiding me so that we can find out why is it that this baby is not as settled as I know they can be.
0: Mm. My girlfriends and I, we have a beautiful mamas group and there's seven of us and we've all had babies, couple in March, couple in April, couple in May, couple in June, so all within the same time frame and we have a group message and We constantly joke. It's just the constant guessing game, you know? So we go through the list. Is it gas? Is it heat? Is it eczema? Like we're constantly just like ruling out (laughs) all of the things and, and supporting each other. So I feel like just keep going, keep ruling things out. If there's something that is unsettling the baby, just keep ruling them out and keep asking questions and get that support. And talk to me about eczema because I've heard you say that, you know, it's very much caused by heat. And I remember in the early stages of rugging Bambi up so warm. And I thought, surely this is too hot. Like I would feel her and everyone would say, no, they've got to be really warm. And my midwives would say, they've got to be warm. And I'm like, goodness me, like how how warm is too warm? So talk to us about eczema and then temperature in the bedroom and temperature with you know what they should be wearing and bedding and things like that.
1: So babies start off in a 37-degree bath for many, many months. So they are really, really warm. And most importantly, they don't need to control their body temperature because it's controlled by you. When they are born, they all of a sudden have to deal with this new sensation called cold and they don't know how to do it. and you may have, you may have seen on your newborn's skin that sort of lacy appearance where they're, they're just trying to figure out how to handle this whole new cooler environment. And so you, the midwives are absolutely right. You do you need to rug a baby a newborn baby up really warm because they're used to being warm. They lose a lot of heat through their heads, so we want beanies to be placed on babies as soon as possible after birth so that they don't lose heat that way. But like so many things, when it comes to pediatrics, you have to close chapters and you have to say, this baby's not a newborn anymore. And now they're getting much better. We're talking a few days. We're not talking months or years. They are better at managing their own body temperature. And so that adage of you've got to add a layer, you've got to rug them up warm, you've got to keep them warm, we've outgrown it. But we still say that same thing. And so as a result of that, we do tend to cook our babies a little bit. We tend to overheat them. Too many layers, too many extra things like mittens and socks and beanies and all these things. Heat is the absolute driver and enemy of eczema and eczema is really, really common. There is a family history genetic component, but there's also babies who've got absolutely no history in the family of ATP or sensitivity who end up having a brief period of eczema. They don't often have it for life. They usually grow out of it, but it is something that needs to be managed because it is so itchy and uncomfortable. And when it gets worse, it can lead to such dryness that the skin actually cracks. If you imagine the earth out at Uluru in Central Australia, the drier the climate, the more likely you are to have cracks in the surface. And when you've got cracks, that's an avenue where bugs can get in. And bugs live on the skin. And if they get in, you then get infected eczema. And that can be a real problem. Those babies can get really sick. They can get uncomfortable temperatures. They need antibiotics. And we really, really want to prevent that from happening. So yes, it's important to prevent it from an infection point of view, but even if it's not that bad, I always aim for perfectly clear, moist, supple skin, and not just better than it is. I want it to be absolutely perfect, and there are lots and lots of different treatment methods, but the number one most effective method is to take the heat out of that baby.
0: Mm, My goodness, so important. It was such a big lesson for me because as you know, Bambi got a tiny bit in her neck crease and a thigh crease. And Nick and I realized that we had just been dressing her way too hot. We live in a tropical climate. Like We've just come out of winter and it was 25 degrees like toward the end of winter. And I'm not joking. I have a thermometer in our bedroom and I was looking at the coldest part of the night, you know, two, three, four. It was still 23 degrees and I'm acting like it's 19 degrees and it's not. And we were having very warm baths and I was putting the oil heater on and I'm like, no wonder she's got this. And since we have Taken down the temperature in the bath and not put as many blankets and things like that, it's definitely calmed down. And I'm going to continue to, you know, not overheat her. I just didn't know, you know?
1: You don't know. So, one thing, you know, we talked about it before about how babies are excellent communicators. You can usually trust that the baby will tell you if they're too hot or if they're too cold by being unsettled, by writhing around, being uncomfortable. And the other thing that's very handy is. If the non-breastfeeding parent just takes two fingers and pops it in the back of the neck, just to feel the back of baby's neck, it's a really good guide. If that feels the same as your hand, they're probably the perfect temperature. And if it feels hot and damp, you need to take a layer off. And if it feels cold to touch, then you need to add a blanket. And I say the non-breastfeeding parent only because a breastfeeding mother has such fluctuations in their own temperature purely because they're churning milk. So they'll often be hotter. And you can vouch for this, that you're, you're quite unreliable when it comes to temperatures, sometimes feel hot, sometimes feel cold. So you want to be basing it on someone else's opinion as opposed to your own if you're breastfeeding at the time.
0: Mm, I think it's time for her to come out of the 2.5 tog and (laughs) into the 1.0 tog. I think it's time. But I also, you know, I know that she sleeps quite well when she is snug, you know, that really cozy feeling. And I'm just thinking to myself, do I put her in the 1.5 and then give her some blankets? And I find that that weight of the blankets is really comforting for her. Like I feel like she really likes that and she just sleeps really, really well when I have that on her.
1: You are 100% right. You can choose to either use a high-tog clothing or onesie or sleeping bag and then a very thin blanket on top, which you can, as you said, tuck in tight to feel the weight of it. If you've got a lot of fluctuations in temperature, which we tend to get around now, springtime, where you can have hot days and then quite cold nights and you just, it's hard to predict. You don't want to be waking the baby up to undress them, change the tog, etc. So I like your suggestion. I would go with the lower tog rating, more blankets, because blankets you can add and subtract with ease without disturbing the baby. So I like your method. That's what I would go with. If you've got unpredictable weather at night, you go with a lower tog and add blankets to make them more comfortable.
0: And just so everyone knows, I live in a tropical climate. It's warm here. We're not talking about you know the middle of winter in London or New York. And I love in your programs, you have all of the guides for the temperature and the clothing and things like that. I have that actually saved on my phone. And every evening as Nick and Bambi are in the bath together, I check the thermometer and I see, "Okay, it's 23 degrees." And I'm like, "What does Dr. Golly say I she should wear at this time?" And so I I look on my phone and I look at the little image that I've saved and it does. It just helps so much. So, your program has been a game changer for me and Nick and given us so much confidence and almost Yeah. More confidence in what we know is already true within us. Like you said, it's innate within us.
1: That's beautiful. That's music to my ears. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: So let's touch now on food. And when do you ideally like to see solids being introduced? There is different schools of thought on this. You know, A lot of people say the baby should be able to sit up, the baby should show interest, the baby should have teeth. So share with us your school of thought on this and with all of the research that you have done, what you have seen to really
1: work. It's a great question and the answer is frustrating to some. There isn't a number. It's not three months or six months. The answer is when that baby is developmentally ready. The problem lies with the interpretation of what that means because what's developmentally ready for you? It might be when they're sitting unsupported and can actually hold a spoon. If that's what you're waiting for, you might be waiting eight or nine months before they can do that. Or is developmentally ready when they've got good head control and they're able to masticate or chew, whether it's with teeth or without, in which case it'll be four months. So when I assess a child, I look for signs of developmental readiness. And also, and I keep talking about it, the baby telling you that they are ready. Most of the time, the answer is four months, roughly four months corrected age. And there are a number of reasons for that. People talk about the four-month sleep regression, right? You've probably heard about it. People dread it. And it's spoken about like it is some necessary evil that you have to go through once you've come out of the haze of the newborn period. You just get thrown into another horrible glut and there's this regression and everything you've worked so hard to achieve just gets thrown out the window and the baby's awake at night. It's absolute nonsense. It just doesn't have to happen. It is entirely preventable and there is a single reason why it happens. Sorry, two reasons why it happens. The first is that teething typically begins at four months of age. And the most common response I get to that comment is, but I can't see any teeth. The important thing to understand when it comes to teething in babies is that the pain of teething is not the eruption of the tooth. It's actually painless when it breaks through and you can see it. The pain is as they move through the gum to get to the surface because By moving, if you think about it, they need to push all of this gum out of the way in order to get there. Once they're out, they're just pushing through air. There's nothing, there's no fight anymore. And so the pain of teething begins well before you see the tooth erupt. If we talk about a baby with their first tooth eruption at six months, that baby will have started having pain and discomfort from four months. And you can see it in their attitude. You can see it with a red cheek. You can see it with sometimes swelling in the gum. Most importantly, you see it with hypersalivation. They drool like crazy. And it happens to coincide with when they become quite focused on their mouth. And that oral fixation is when is what ties in with when they are developmentally approaching readiness for solids. Bind with the developmental ability from a gross motor point of view of being able to have good head control. But they do not need trunk control. They don't have to be sitting independently to start solids. And if you look at some cultures, especially ancient ones, they start solids after a few weeks of life. I'm not suggesting six weeks is the right answer. I'm merely illustrating the point that it's not dangerous to start solids. I get a lot of people saying to me they're terrified about starting solids under six months because of a choking hazard. It's absolutely nothing to be afraid of. And if the baby is giving you signs that they are developmentally ready, they're telling you, I've got this, mum don't worry, dad, I can do this. You just bring me the food and I will show you I've got this. And so many parents will say to me, I offered thinking they would have a spoon and three bowls later, they're still looking for more. So we often tend to start solids way later than the baby was telling us they were ready and what that results in is a baby who's not getting enough calories in the day to satisfy that amount of physical growth. And that's why babies are waking through the night to feed more because they simply can't get more calories in. You see, milk, breast milk or formula, is almost like an inefficient way of getting calories inside because there's so much water in it. It's like cordial. If you know cordial is the thing you're looking for, you've got to add so much water and drink a huge volume in order to get that same volume of nutrients inside you. So the stomach is only so big, it can't keep on expanding more and more. And therefore the feed is capped with how much they can drink in a sitting. Whereas if you offer them solids, it's a much more concentrated form of nutrition. There are more calories, more bang for your buck, and therefore they're getting more calories per sitting. So they're not going to seek it overnight. And just like that, the 4 monthly progression disappears.
0: I can hear so many mamas going, yes, (laughs) Dr. Golly, thank you. So yeah, that's a really interesting perspective because I'd always thought that it was six months, you know, that's just what you hear a lot of. So that's a really interesting perspective. And
1: And the other thing, there is another perspective to consider also the small issue of allergens. So we in Australia, it's almost like we've become the allergy capital of the world, unfortunately, especially as you move further south down to Sydney and Melbourne. So we've seen from countless studies that the earlier that you introduce a child to allergens, we're talking nuts, fish, egg, even exposure to touching dogs and even lying on grass, the earlier you expose kids, the less likely they are to be allergic down the track. So if you delay solids and allergen exposure until six months and later, you're giving that child a higher chance of being allergic to peanuts or cashews or whatever it is they may be sensitive to. So there's more reasons than just avoiding the four-month sleep progression to get solids in as early as the child is telling you they're ready, which is usually around the four-month mark.
0: So interesting. So with allergens, do you think that a way to approach that would be, okay, say it's nuts, trying one nut, like you eating that nut and that coming through your breast milk for a couple of days? or, Or how do we approach this allergen situation?
1: Great question, very common. Allergens don't travel through breast milk. So the only way that you're going to expose Bambi, for example, to peanuts is by you eating peanuts and then there being small particles of peanut on your fingers and then you handle her. So it doesn't travel through breast milk. So that's not exposure. The easiest way to do it is number one, assume your baby's not going to be allergic. You never want to approach your baby with fear because it's just not a nice thing to feed someone. You don't wanna feed them a whole bowl full of fear and anxiety, it doesn't taste very good. So assume, even if there are allergies in the family, assume that your child is not going to be allergic and make sure, obviously, that your first aid skills, your knowledge of what to look for are up to date and you're not doing it 10 minutes before you're gonna put them to sleep and potentially miss a reaction. So if we're talking about allergy, the easiest thing to do from four months of age If we're talking peanuts, as you suggested, get some smooth peanut butter, put it on your finger and put it in their mouth. Any reaction unlikely to happen on the first exposure. So what you do is you put aside three days and you say, okay, on Monday, we're going to give the first exposure to peanuts. Now, the baby doesn't have to actually swallow any. They just have to have it in their mouth. So if they spit it out, no problem. You could put some egg in their mouth. They can spit it out. No problem. You do three days of peanuts, and then if there's no reaction over those three days, we're looking for a reaction within one hour, then you can be safe and say that baby is not allergic to peanuts, and then you can generally include it in their diet moving forward. Then you progress to cashews, and then you progress to Brazil nuts and all the other tree nuts, and then you try fish, and then you try milk directly, and then you try eggs, and you just think about all of the common things that people are allergic to, and you give each one. Three days at a time. And it's also important to remember, like I touched on before, it's not just eaten allergens. So when you go to the park or even in your back garden, let your baby roll around on the grass. And when you see a dog or a cat, if you don't own one, let your baby touch that cat. Don't keep your baby too clean and too sterile because that is our thinking as to why rates of allergy are going up because we're actually not exposing early enough and we're not exposing enough in general.
0: Right. And so if you do expose them and there's no allergen, we just presume that that's all good. But if there is an allergen, then what do
1: we do? So it depends on the type of reaction. If you're talking about a mild reaction where the baby may have become a bit unsettled, maybe done a small vomit, um, maybe have a small evolving rash, and generally they look okay, they're still happy, they're still drinking or playing, whatever it may be, you stop exposing to that allergen completely. Don't try it again. And then you contact your doctor and then we may go down the path of allergy testing. And that is usually done in a controlled environment where we expose the child to certain common allergens and we can find out exactly what they're allergic to and then manage it accordingly. If in doubt as to what the reaction is, if you feel like God, is that lip starting to swell? I'm not sure. I don't know. You call an ambulance immediately. You call an ambulance. You ask questions later. No paramedic will ever come to your house looking at a perfectly happy baby and tell you off for wasting their time. That does not happen. The problem happens with the parent who says, I didn't want to bother them, or I didn't want to call the ambulance. I didn't think it was that bad. And then it goes from not that bad to seriously bad very quickly. So if in doubt, call for help. But at the same time, you have to assume that nothing will happen. So no, you don't need to expose to allergens in the car park of a hospital or in the waiting room of your GP, as a lot of people do. I understand the fear. I'm very blessed and lucky to have no allergies with my children, but I do understand the fear. It's just important to know that it's not likely to happen on the first exposure, sometimes not even on the second exposure. And that's why you assume that it won't be there, but you do act upon it if you start to see signs. And if in doubt, stop exposing straight away and contact your doctor.
0: Mm, great advice. Let's talk about poo. How often should <laughs> babies be pooing? What is the color? You Because know, I remember there was one time where Bambi didn't poo for a day and I was on voice message to my mama's group and I said, she hasn't pooed today. She didn't poo today. What's going on? What do I do? And they're like, it's okay, Melissa, calm down. She will just do a really big poo probably tomorrow. And that's what happened. So talk to us about frequency and color of poo and what we should be looking for and uh, looking out for that might not be ideal.
1: If you take my phone and scroll through the pictures in and amongst photos of my dog and my kids and my wife, you're going to see a lot of poo pictures because that is all that people send me, lots and lots of poo questions. Oh, lovely. uh, You're like,
0: thanks, guys. Thanks.
1: Look, there are certain things to worry about and there are certain things you don't need to worry about. And I'm really glad, thank you for this opportunity to talk about it because there's a lot of focus on poo frequency and it is probably the least important thing of all. So poo obviously starts with meconium, that black tarry kind of thing that comes out of baby's bottoms, usually straight away, hopefully in the first 24 hours. I'm not going to talk about specific illnesses or or problems that have to do with the structure of the bowel because that's a surgical issue and that's something you're going to know about very quickly. If your baby's pooed early and we're talking about a normal healthy baby, a breastfed baby is almost never, ever going to be constipated. When we talk about constipation, it has nothing to do with the frequency of poo. It's only to do with the consistency of what comes out. If your baby is mixed fed or formula fed or on solids and they're pooing pebbles, that's constipation. Even if it's three times a day, if they're pooing pebbles, if they're struggling and straining or they're bleeding or something's really difficult to get poo out, that is constipation that needs to be managed. But on the other end of the spectrum, a breastfed baby can poo anywhere from every feed. We're talking seven, eight times a day to once a week. So a baby who's breastfed three, four weeks of life, who hasn't pooed for a week, there's nothing to worry about. You do not want to be the parent who cleans up that nappy when it does arrive, trust me, because it's going to be an absolute poo as they say. But you don't have to worry. And if the baby's not uncomfortable, again, they are going to tell you. So if they haven't pooed for three or four days, but they're totally happy and they're breastfed, do not worry about that at all. When it comes to abnormality in terms of the poo content, in general, after that black poo clears after a couple of days, poo in the first few years of life can be anywhere from yellow to green to brown and everything in between. The three colours that we want to look out for that are not good are black, red and white. Those colours in the poo are a problem. And just a reminder, not in the first few days where black poo is okay. Once it's cleared, it should never come back. So look out for black, red, or white in the poo. I'm not talking about little bits of white that are just partially digested milk, that's fine. If the general colour is that sort of brown, yellow, nutty, or green, don't worry. Green just means that things are moving through quickly. It's not a problem. The content of the poo is quite important. So if there is mucus, which some parents find really difficult to spot, but if you're looking at a poo, And I'm sorry to be so graphic here, but some parents will find this very helpful. If you take the nappy off and then squeeze it together and open it like you're opening a book, if you see stringiness like snot or like slime, that is mucus. And in the poo, it sometimes looks like snot or it looks like it's got a glow to it. That's mucus. And that tells us that there is an intolerance in that baby's gut, not an allergy, an intolerance to something either in the formula or in the breastfeeding mother's diet. Most of the time, it's cow's milk in the mother's diet or a cow milk-based formula. There's also a lot of cross-reactivity with soy. So if you're finding that your baby's unsettled or has difficult-to-control eczema and you see mucus in the poo, the first thing I'd be doing is getting rid of dairy in mum's diet, not replacing it with soy, but going more vegan, away from animal milk. So don't use goat's milk or anything like that and you're going to find a huge reduction. Now, if there's inflammation from intolerance, the first thing you'll see is mucus. If that inflammation increases in severity, you'll see blood. Now, I'm not suggesting that you ignore that and just say, oh, I'll just change my diet. If there's blood, have the baby seen. So we're making sure we're not missing something more sinister. But usually just by making small changes to a breastfeeding mother's diet, you can get rid of that problem immediately. And because it's not allergy, Because we're talking about a tolerance issue, that breastfeeding mother can have milk. They just can't have a lot. So have a piece of chocolate, have a croissant, have a piece of fish cooked in butter. That's fine. But don't have a white coffee with your bowl of yogurt and then a quiche, a pizza for lunch or whatever. If you have a lot of dairy, that baby's going to get a big load of cow milk protein and then they're going to suffer if they're intolerant to that.
0: Mm, So fascinating. So fascinating. It's so good to hear. And I know this would be so helpful to so many parents out there and parents-to-be. And uh, for anyone who is not a parent or a parent-to-be right now, bookmark this or send it to one of your pregnant friends. But I would love to hear, apart from your incredible program, if you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now think about your three children when they get to high school. Now this could be a book on health, it could be a book on money, it could be a relationship book, it could be a pregnancy book, whatever. What is one book that you would choose?
1: That is the most brilliant and difficult question (laughs) I've ever heard. (laughs) Wow, I wouldn't even know where to start. I think what I would love to teach teenagers in life is about balance and about white and black, good and bad, the yin and yang. And although I risk getting quite spiritual, I think I struggled with that and learned most about this concept when I was travelling through India. And I saw and was exposed to the real have-nots in the world, true poverty And I really, really struggled when I was backpacking through India. And thankfully, I was traveling with a friend of mine, a beautiful, beautiful person, Samantha. She won't mind me saying her name. She's gone on to become a psychologist because she's just so brilliant. And she coached me and she taught me about the black and white, the yin and yang, the balance and the fact that you need the have-nots in order to have the haves. And so it's important when you have certain things to appreciate that you can only have them because someone else doesn't. And as a result of that, I would say the two books that really guided me, number one will be A Fine Balance by Rowanton Mystery, a magnificent book about India and slums, and the other one would be Shantaram by Gregory David Roberts. You've read it? You're nodding? Yes. yes. And I
0: haven't, um, no, no, sorry, I haven't read either of those, but I know ah. Shantaram, I know it very well.
1: It's just a magnificent book. There might be some content that are perhaps inappropriate for teenagers, so we may have to wait until they enter university. But I would say that he just gives a beautiful example of how you can make mistakes and you can still do good. You can come from a bad place and still enter a good place. You can help others. And he's got the most beautifully simplistic definition of good versus bad. And I just loved, loved, loved the book. It's almost like a backpacker's journal. And I would encourage anyone of any age to get their hands on that and read that beautiful, beautiful book.
0: And we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll link to both of those in the show notes, as well as your incredible programs. Now, is there anything else that you want to share with us before we part ways? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to cover that we didn't speak about
1: I just want to thank you for this opportunity because you've got the most beautiful platform to get the word out and one of the frustrations that I have and a lot of doctors have is that we see one person at a time and we can only reach one person at a time and that was one of the things that prompted me to build this program was to try to expand that reach and help people who live in another state help people who live in another country we're getting beautiful uptake overseas and I just want people to know far and wide that of all the people on the planet, the best parent for your child is you. You've got the skills. I know it's hard and I know it's scary and I know it's daunting. I know because I've been there. Even with all my training and my knowledge and experience, I've been there and I've come out the other end. Like you said, we wish we could parent our first the way we parent our third or fourth, just with all of that confidence And I want you to use this program, I want you to to follow this method so that you feel empowered, you feel that you've got the toolbox to then say, I know what's wrong with my child or I know what my child needs. I'm not going to be told by someone, I'm not going to, you know, have that innate instinct drowned out by so much outside noise and if I can empower one parent then I'm happy I consider that a job done so thank you for spreading the word and please just continue to do so that is exactly what I would love
0: oh beautiful I'm so glad that you have Got this program, and I'm sure books are on the cards in the future and things like that as well, because it is a great way to get your message out there and to help many, many people. So, I want to thank you, Dr. Golly, for your program, for sharing with us so beautifully today. You're helping so many parents and so many people out there. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And you are giving to so many people. You're serving so many people. So I want to know how I and the listeners can give back to you. How can we serve you today?
1: Oh, that would be wonderful. I guess just follow me on Instagram. Dr. Golly is the name. There's lots and lots of information that I try to put out every day, every week on eczema, on winding, on pregnancy, you name it. If something comes by my rooms, if I see an interesting case, I just try to tell people. So follow me so that we can continue spreading that word, remove myths and, and misinformation and just get raw truth out there so that everyone can really enjoy the most magnificent, beautiful thing that is being a parent.
0: It truly is. It is such a gift. I love it so much. I love being a mum, And I'm so grateful that there's people out there like you who are guiding and supporting us and answering all of our questions. So thank you so much. And we'll link to your program. We'll link to all of your handles in the show notes. But thank you so much for being here, Dr. Golly. I'm so grateful.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Don't forget to head to Comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. This information is gold. And truly, his burping technique was such a game changer for us. So go and check out his program. And if you loved this conversation, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. It also means that all my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for new episodes. And please come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I love hearing from you. So please come and share. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock.